does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endureth all things. Before we jump in, I'd like to just um, quickly talk about an opportunity that's happening here. Um, I've had the great blessing over these past few months to get to, to lead the young adults group, and we've been currently going through the book of James every other Thursday. It's just a time for us to gather together and, and to fellowship together, study together, um, and to just, just have good conversation. Um, it's a great group of people, and so if, if you fit in that category, if you fit in the, as, as John has said before, the young at heart category, category with that, or if you have a friend of yours that's in that age bracket that would, that would like to come, please do. And in light of that, um, the Warlows are going to be hosting us today. Ashley and Amy, and I'm sorry, <laughs> that's what's written in the bulletin is, is Ashley Warlow, but, um, but, but Alex, Amy, and Ashley Warlow's house will be over there, and um, we're looking forward to having that time of fellowship with all of them. So big thanks to them for being willing to host that for us, and, um, and I just really have appreciated already getting to know so many of you even better through that. So I want to to say that before we jump in. What is being represented by this picture behind me? People who somehow have megaphones that are proportionately on their heads? Yeah, that's weird, but that's not necessarily what I'm thinking about here. Are you considering maybe a husband and a wife having a marital dispute of some kind? Are you picturing two higher-ups in a meeting that are really having a major difference of opinion and it gets heated? Are you thinking about two students during a group project who just cannot seem to see eye to eye on how to execute that project? There could be all kinds of scenarios running through your mind right now, but I'm pretty sure that if those little speech bubbles tell me anything is that this is about conflict. And if you'll notice, a megaphone doesn't necessarily have a receiving function. There seems to be a lot of talking, a lot of, a lot of arguing happening here, but perhaps not any listening. If you're like me at all, uh, you hate confrontation. I know for myself, if I could avoid every bit of confrontation that exists in this world, I would in a heartbeat. I can't stand it. And maybe I'm not the only one who's like that. Maybe I'm, I'm just cowardly in that, but conflict is no fun. And yet, as Christians, we certainly understand that conflict is not just possible, it's inevitable. And when we're in the face of conflict, we can't sit there and simply ask ourselves, what do we do to avoid it? We need to ask ourselves when we're in the face of conflict, what do we do to deal with it? There are many solutions that could be put forward, but allow me to suggest to us today that the main solution to any conflict is love. Whatever situation is happening, whether it be marital, in the business world, between students, whatever it may be, most likely there's something that could be put forward as a solution or an approach that has to do with love. The solution to conflict is always in some way related to love. Without love, no conflict is ever truly solved. What does the Bible generally tell us about love? What we see from John 13 and verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our discipleship is evidenced by the love that we show for each other. It's not just a thing that we can look at and say is optional. Love is necessary. It's a requirement of this faith. We have to do it to show the world that we're truly committed. 
What does Paul then say in Colossians 3 and verse 14? And above all these previously stated things that relate to the marks of a true Christian, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So when we come together in opportunities like Colossians 3.16, which describe where we come together and we worship together, there's love binding us. We're not sitting here all sitting together in pews and yet separated as can be. We're united in love, that's the idea, and we're supposed to be harmoniously worshiping together in that, living together in that. That's what happened in Acts 2 as well. But perhaps the most blunt, about 1 John 4 and verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We just sang it, but how much clearer can it possibly be? This is not simply a a matter that relates to our personalities and some will choose to be more loving than others and, you know, Christians could have differences of how they view love. That's not really how this works. What John says is that you do not truly know God if you do not love and if you do not exude the same kind of love that God shows to his creation perfectly. Now, it's not to say that we're going to be perfect in doing it, but the standard is here. Because God is love, I need to do my best to emulate that in the way that I love others. We spent some time talking about conflict, and in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul would certainly show that he's no stranger to the idea of church conflict. When you look earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there are these Christians who seem to be arguing amongst themselves about different spiritual gifts that they have, and some are beginning to think that their gifts put them above others, and some are feeling undermined and downplayed because their gift doesn't seem to be as good or as powerful or as impactful as someone else's gift. And Paul makes a very interesting rhetorical shift here. He goes from talking about these these spiritual gifts that existed within the first century to talking about a gift that continues to exist in the 21st century. He says that, yes, all of these things you guys are arguing about, it's not even going to last, but let me tell you about something that will. And he proceeds to say that this more excellent way is love. In that sense, it's true that Paul describes love as a gift of sorts. But I also want us to think about love as something that we ourselves give in our kindness to others. It's a gift that perhaps isn't necessarily contingent on how we feel about a person as much as it is what we're willing to do for that person. We need to be sincere, certainly, but the gift of love is something that Paul emphasizes to us is non-negotiable in this faith. I want us to think about tonight four attributes of Christian love. Four attributes of Christian love. We'll be going from 1 Corinthians 13, four through seven, but here are the four attributes that we'll be thinking about. From verse four, we'll talk about the fact that love is humble. Love is humble. Love has a proper view, a loving person has a proper view of himself and a proper view of those around him. He doesn't think too highly of himself, doesn't think low of those around him. Love is humble. Second from verse five, we'll talk about the fact that love is peaceable. Love is peaceable. Love does not enjoy conflict. Love does not enjoy bickering with people. Love seeks solutions. From verse six then, we'll talk about the fact that love is virtuous. There is a moral standard that's, that's made in God's word that a truly loving person sticks to, clings to. Love is virtuous. And finally, love is optimistic from verse seven. 
love does everything in its power to take the best spin on things that it can, to view people in the best possible light, even when it's difficult, or rather, let me say it this way, especially when it's difficult. It's these four attributes that we'll briefly talk about tonight. So with that said, let's go ahead and read verse four here. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Love is humble. In order for someone to be a loving person, they have to be a humble person, but what does that humility involve? Well, it involves two things. First of all, to be a humble person, you have to be a patient person. You must be a patient person. We were just talking about Colossians chapter three and how Paul was talking about these marks of a true Christian, and here's what he says in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, right? He goes on to say, bearing with one another. It is necessary for Christians to be patient. Now, how does this, how does this show humility? Well, very often the things that we get upset for others for not realizing that, you know, that make us upset. Things about the Bible that we're trying to get them to understand, but they're just not getting it. If we were truly being honest with ourselves, we would know that those things took us time to understand too. And being truly humble recognizes that this person deserves time as well to grow and to mature. And that maybe in my haste to make them change, I'm not being humble enough to consider that they need more time. Love is humble and in so doing it's patient. But also love is unassuming. And by that word, we're just meaning that it's, that it's modest, it's not pretentious, it's not, it's not arrogant. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 11, our Savior says it very plainly. He says that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Consider with me that Jesus is the only person who ever walked this earth who had the qualifications to ever potentially be boastful if he so chose. I mean, he's God, he's the son of God. He, he is the ruler of the church. I think by human standards, he would have been the only person who would have had any right to be arrogant. Yeah, he never was. He never boasted, he never, he never was, he never was a boastful person. What did that tell us then about a Christian who's arrogant? What did that tell us about a Christian who thinks that, that God needs him in order for, for his plan to be fulfilled? I think it says that maybe they need to read of Jesus again. Love is humble, and in so doing, it allows people to have the time to grow, and it doesn't have an, an inflated view of itself or a low view of people around him. Love is humble. Let's go to verse five then. Verse five, 1 Corinthians 13. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love is peaceable. That's our point, love is peaceable. In order for, for a loving person to be peaceable, that necessarily means they need to be receptive, first of all. Notice how it says, it does not insist on its own way. When you go to James chapter three, verses 13 through 17, it talks about the wisdom from above. And it names all these attributes that, that show what it means to be a truly wise person by God's standard. And one thing that it mentions in James 3.17 is that a wise person is open to reason. What we think of that is they're willing to back down. 
a person needs to be receptive when they mess up. I think more so, we just need to be willing to hear other people's perspectives in general. When there's a dispute of some kind in the workplace, I, I looked at all of these different articles talking about what it looks like to be a, a stellar employee because I wanted to see what the, what the world was saying about that. And the results are not going to surprise us at all. One of the things that was mentioned repeatedly was an exemplary employee is someone who's willing to do things in someone else's way. He's someone who's willing to get out of his comfort zone and see that, that if someone thinks that this way could be expedient for them to do something, that they do it. A person's receptive to input when they're loving. And when we do things wrong, we certainly need to be receptive so that we can amend that conflict. But it's not just about when we do things wrong, it's also about when others do things wrong against us, right? It's also when maybe someone else needs to be the one who's listening and receiving input. We need to be forgiving. I am unsure of any passage that says it as clearly and as bluntly as Ephesians 4 and verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How much more plainly could it have been said? The, the forgiveness that we show to other people, where does it say in this passage that it's easy? I don't think it does say that it's easy. But nevertheless, it says the forgiveness that we show, yes, it doesn't mean that I'm atoning for someone's sins like my Lord did. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that I need to be having a forgiving spirit, a willing heart that seeks reconciliation, not one that just seeks continued conflict and hostility. To truly be forgiving is to exemplify the kind of love that Christians are to have for each other. Love is peaceable. Let's go to verse six then in 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love is virtuous. Love has a moral standard that is informed by God's word and it sticks to it. And it just in general is able to, first of all, discern. A truly loving person is a discerning person. Now, this may seem strange, but how loving are you really if your standard of what that looks like can differ depending on the day? If you think that goodness is an optional subjective matter, how loving can you truly be in that regard? What do the Psalms tell us? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. It doesn't stand in the way of sinners. It doesn't take ungodly advice. It doesn't allow itself to be wrongly influenced by wrong influences. It allows itself to be discerning enough to say, this is wrong and this is right, and to stand by that. That's what love does. Husbands, wives, if you see your spouse being mistreated by someone, if you see someone being rude to them and you know that that's not right, stand up for them. And as, in as respectful a way as you can, stand up for them. If you're in the workplace and you find that there's an employee that's being mistreated or undermined, stand up for that. Because in a sense, when we refuse to open our mouths when something is happening um, personally, 
in some way, we're, we're not showing an attitude that rejoices with the truth. We're, we're truly showing that we're okay with a status quo that promotes harm. We need to be willing to be discerning. But love is also committed if it's virtuous. Psalm 119 verse 97 says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day, right? When we say committed, we're just talking about that it's something that someone is devoted to. They, they are willing to stick to it. You could just say here that they're a moral person, but there's so much more to it. They are moral, yes, but they have their reason why. In so many cases, there can be instances of good people in this world, as we say, and yet they don't have a why. For Christians, the why is our Lord. The why is our Savior who went to the cross on our behalf, and the why is his love that we seek to emulate. That's why we do what we do, and we're committed to upholding that truth. It rejoices with the truth. That's what love does when it's virtuous. Finally, love is optimistic. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Plain and simple, it's optimistic. It tries its best to have the best spin on things. It tries to view people in the best possible light, especially when it's hard. And for love to be optimistic, that first of all means that love has to be forbearing. Forbearing. That's just, in some ways, another word for patience, but there's so much more involved with that word as well. When we go to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 14 through 15, we're told to be patient with everyone, but to read the whole verse, let's just see what Paul says. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle or the disorderly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. When it says there, help the weak, this is, this is important, I think. It's primarily talking about people who are being spiritually weak, the people who are walking in some disorderly fashion in their lives morally, people who perhaps are rejoicing at wrongdoing, like what we just saw in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 6. It's those kinds of people, especially, that Paul reminds us that we need to be forbearing with. In verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. When that wrong affects us, we don't seek our own personal vengeance. That is simply not what Christians do. And love is not forbearing as in being a doormat. Love is forbearing as in, I know that you have the potential of being a faithful brother or sister in the Lord, and I am going to hold out hope that one day you will make that decision. I can't necessarily force this person to change, but what I can do is pray that they see the truth. If love is optimistic, that first of all means that it's forbearing. Second, it means that it's hopeful. It means that it's hopeful in someone's character. It means that it's, it's willing to see the potential in someone and to hope that they truly want to change and they truly want to serve. That's what we're talking about when we mean hopeful in this context. Do our minds not go to Barnabas here? who after Paul meets the Lord and, and speaks with him and is baptized, he goes to, to, the, he goes to the disciples. And what we find in Acts 9 is that initially they are not really willing to take him in. Verse 26 of Acts 9. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, 
And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Barnabas was willing to hold out hope that Paul was being sincere. And he allowed the other disciples to see that there was an opportunity for them to likewise have a hope in him because of what God had done in his life. Love is optimistic. It does not view people in a way of assuming that they will just always stay where they currently are. I am a very, very different person than who I was even four years ago. Those from free know that very, very well. I am so thankful I'm not the person I was even yesterday. And yet a big part of that is that people were willing to be patient with me. They were willing to answer my endless questions about just about everything morally. They were willing to sit with me and take care of me in those moments that I really, really needed help. If we're all being honest, we can all look at the past four years, 10 years, 20 years, and find a multitude of ways in which we've changed. And in our cases, I'm sure we can pinpoint people who were patient with us in that process. And so if someone comes to us who likewise needs someone to be hopeful in them, who needs someone to believe in them, can they count on you to be that person? Can they count on you to, yes, see their past and see what they've done, but see that you're making strides? Are they, can they count on you to be that person for them? I need to think on that. I want us to close by thinking about 2 Peter 3.18, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What in the world does this have to do with love? What does growth have anything to do with this topic? Two things. First of all, allow me to just mention that love allows for those around you to grow. Love is sometimes all that's needed for someone to truly grow into the person that they can be. And we need to be willing to give that opportunity to them. But this isn't just about the people around you, though. This isn't just about the people around us, the people that we, that we passive-aggressively always say we want them to change. It's, it's not just about them. Love allows you to grow, too. And oftentimes in these conflicts that we talk about, even when, when the other person is clearly in the wrong, there's an opportunity for us to grow, too. There's some way in which we can grow in our patience, in our forbearance, in our view of them, in our prayer life even, as we pray over that conflict. There's some way that we are able to grow too. And we need to be humble enough to recognize that there are opportunities that exist for us and those around us to grow. The gift of love is truly the greatest gift that a Christian can share with the world. And as Jesus said in John 13, 35, it is the way that the world will know that we are his disciples. However, maybe you're not sure what that love in Christ even looks like. We would love to study with you. We would love to teach you. And if you want to start a journey with Christ, if you need to be forgiven of your sins, please come. We'd love to baptize you for the remission of your sins. If you need the prayers of the church, please let us love you in that way as well. Let us bear your burdens as we're commanded to do in Galatians 6 and verse 2. 
We love you, and if there's anything we can do for you, please come forward now as we stand and sing.